My name is Jonathan Havercroft, and this is the Just Riot Theory podcast. The paradigmatic example of civil disobedience leading to radical change is the U.S. civil rights movement of the late 1950s and 1960s. The two most famous figures from this movement are Rosa Parks, whose refusal to give up her seat in a Montgomery bus in 1955 initiated the Birmingham bus boycott, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., whose campaigns of nonviolent direct action throughout the U.S. South in the 50s and 60s led to the end of segregation and the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Over the last decade, the movement for Black Lives has found itself in a bind. On the one hand, many see it as the successor to the civil rights movement, challenging post-segregation forms of racial injustice in the U.S. and across the globe. On the other hand, many conservative critics of the movement often chastise it on the grounds that its activists do not use the same tactics as Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King. The movement for Black Lives is criticized for not renouncing violence, for not having clear leadership, for, renoun- for uh, renouncing respectability politics, and for not announcing clear policy goals. Juliet Hooker takes issue with the demands being placed on contemporary Black protest movements. In a series of academic articles over the last six years, she has challenged what she calls the narrative of democratic sacrifice in American politics. What she means by this is that the mythology of the 1960s civil rights movement has placed an unfair burden on contemporary Black activists. The narrative of democratic sacrifice argues that Black citizens must be willing to sacrifice themselves in order to change the attitude of the white majority on matters of racial justice. In the classic version of this narrative, it was the literal sacrifice of Black civil rights activists in Birmingham in 1963, whereby protesters experienced physical violence at the hands of Bull Connor's police force that compelled Northern white liberals to change their attitudes about civil rights. Hooker rejects this narrative on both ethical and empirical grounds, and instead calls for a different narrative, one that she terms democratic repair. In our conversation today, we discuss her critique of the narrative of democratic sacrifice, what alternative narratives Hooker suggests for making sense of contemporary Black protest movements, and her interpretation of recent uprisings in the U.S. in response to the police killings of Black citizens. Juliet Hooker is professor of political science at Brown University. She is a political theorist specializing in racial justice, multiculturalism, Latin American political thought, Black political thought, and Afro-descendant and indigenous politics in Latin America. She is the author of Race and the Politics of Solidarity from Oxford University Press in 2009 and Theorizing a Race in the Americas from Oxford University Press in 2017. Our conversation today focuses on her current research project, which examines the politics of loss and her South Atlantic quarterly article, Black Protest, White Grievance, on the problem of white political imaginations not shaped by loss, and her political theory article, Black Lives Matter and the Paradoxes of U.S. Black Politics, from Democratic Sacrifice to Democratic Repair. So, so Juliet, welcome to the podcast. Uh, and we're going to talk today about your article in political theory from a few years back called Black Lives Matter and the Paradoxes of U.S. Black Politics from Democratic Sacrifice to Democratic Repair. Uh, but before we talk about that, I want to know how you became interested in the subject of black protest uh, as an area for your research. 
Uh, so first of all, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, this article came about as a result of the protests in Ferguson and the very heavy-handed and militarized and violent um, crackdown that followed. I was actually um, outside the US. I was teaching a study abroad course that summer of 2015. And so I had to follow it all on social media and on the news. And there was for me this weird, um, you know, there was this anger, this pain, this um, suffering from, um, you know, um, people who were watching the protests. Um, and who who identified with the protesters and with the pain of, of the those who had been killed by police violence. And then that was interspersed with the people who seemed completely removed and who kept posting cat videos and, you know, all the, the sort of daily social media posting. And so, as so you know, I'm a political theorist. So what we do, right, is we try to make sense of, of things that happen in the world by by, by looking at the traditions that we engage in. And so I started to think about what had led to this imagery of tanks and, and um, the state really um, violently repressing Black protesters. And how had we come to the point where people in the U.S. or uh, what seemed like a significant number of people thought that was acceptable and were prepared to defend that kind of reaction to black protests. And that was really um, where the article, that was the, the the sort of trying to make sense of that, trying to make sense of it in light of the tradition of black political thought is what led to that piece. Your piece asks a, a set of questions about the forms of politics black citizens can and should pursue. And it's specifically in the context of confronting police violence in the US, but you also tie it back into the history of kind of protests in the U.S., right? So you talk about a conceptual trap that comes out of what you call the romantic historical narrative of Black activism that comes out of the 60s civil rights movement. So would you mind explaining what you think this narrative is? And then I think more importantly, how you think it's become a trap for contemporary contemporary politics and protest movements? So first of all, I want to say I don't think this is a problem only for the way in which we remember the history of Black protests. I think this is um, actually a, a problem for the way we, we think about the history of how um, uh, expansions of rights have happened. And we tend to have a very, um, um, I think often I'll say this particularly in the U.S., a kind of teleological notion, right, that there's this ever unfolding expansion of rights that's is how the history of the U.S. Um, has developed. And so I think when people look back now, for example, the 1960s, which has become this iconic example of civil disobedience, that there is this way in which people forget just how fraught, contested, and violent um, that struggle um, against racial segregation was, right? Despite the fact that of course, protesters embrace civil disobedience and they embrace nonviolence. The fact of the matter is that there was, as MLK himself said, that that the the power of the protests came from the fact that they were met with violence. And so these scenes of these nonviolent protesters being 
violently repressed are what the civil rights movement activists were um, essentially hoping would change people's opinions about racial segregation, would let them to see that this was um, a completely unjust system. But when this has been remembered, I think, in US historical national uh, public memory, it's remembered as this, this moment where everybody kind of came together and peacefully agreed that, yes, segregation needed to go, and there was really no confrontation, and we had these kind of well-behaved, you know, um, well-dressed protesters in suits and women in hats, um, and, and everybody just had this, this, this kind of peaceful dialogue. And people forget how demonized MLK was, right, who has become, a, emerges this kind of central figure, um, you know, he was called, a, you know, he was accused of, of, of fomenting, um, you know, being an outsider who was coming into these communities and, and stirring up um, uh, violence and unrest. And so there is this narrative about, I think one of the things that has happened is that this narrative that emerged about the 1960s um, uh, that forgets all of the conflict, contestation, violence that was required to bring about um, the end of racial segregation has now been used to discipline um, and try to contain subsequent Black protest movements, right? So they're always compared to this very sanitized narrative about what previous Black protests were like, particularly the civil rights movement of the 60s, and found lacking, right? They don't measure up either because they're too uncivil, they don't have a, um, you know, a clear um, leadership structure, whatever the, the particular critique is. Okay, so your article talks about this con a couple of concepts. I want to talk about the first one, which is democratic sacrifice. Can you explain what this concept means and then why you think it's problematic that sacrifice, you say it's not equally shared in the U.S. between black and white. So I guess, why is that the case? And then what's, I guess, what's the problem with that? So the discussion of democratic sacrifice comes from the work of Danielle Allen, who uh, derives it from her reading of Ralph Ellison. And Ellison and Allen talk about um, so Ellison talks about the fact that um, African-Americans were confronting racial violence. Um, and he's writing actually about, um, in response to Hannah Arendt's critique of, um, of the parents who sent their children to desegregate schools. And Arendt critiques the parents because she sees them as putting their children in danger, asking them to engage in these political activities that should be reserved for adults. And Allison says, you know, in his reply to her says, um, in fact, African-Americans are confronted with violence in all these moments in their lives and that there is this um, this element of sacrifice that is required not to respond to violence with violence and to um, and to know and you and he says and they refrain from it in part because they're sacrificing on behalf of this 
larger idea, right, of, 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 um, of democracy, but also because they know that they can be killed, right? So, so I'm trying to, to say contra this notion that, you know, African-Americans are somehow not being heroic, that he sees Arendt as, um, as putting forward, Ellison says, no, they're actually engaged in these heroic sacrifices that we need to honor. And so Alan builds on, um, on Ellison to say that democracy's always, participation in democracy requires acceptance of loss and that these are sacrifices that people have to make, citizens have to make for each other all the time in democracy, right? Your party loses an election and you have to accept assuming you think the, you know, the conditions were fair and legitimate, that you lost and the other side won and, and they get to be the part in power. And so she characterizes this as, as sacrifices that we make on behalf of each other. And one of the things that I argue in the piece is that, which Alan acknowledges, is that historically those sacrifices haven't been equally shared. Right, that the way in which white supremacy has worked is that some people have had to sacrifice more than others. Um, they've been, um, I mean, in the US up until now, I mean, we're still seeing all of these efforts now to restrict um, the ability of uh, people of color to participate electorally, right? You see all of these restrictions on voting um, that. Um, various um, states are trying to implement. So this civic capacity of responding to loss without, um, for example, engaging in, in, in violence, in terrorism, in, 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 some, um, in some sort of violent way is what Alan characterizes as a democratic sacrifice. And part of what I want to suggest in the piece is that yes, it is, democratic sacrifice, but there's a problem with that. And the problem is that we keep asking the same people to display the same kind of um, heroic civic capacities over and over. And rather than seeing that as a sign of democratic health or of democratic excellence, we should see it as a sign that democracy is actually rotting, that it is not functioning as the way in the way in which it should. Yeah. And so your your other concepts that you're kind of pairing sacrifice off against is this idea of democratic repair. So would you mind explaining what that concept is and and kind of how it's relevant for your argument? So I take this idea of democratic repair from the way in which I think a lot of democratic theorists talk about democracy, right? So I think I think most democratic theorists think about political activism, particularly political activism by marginalized groups in terms of this reparative frame where those struggles, right, um, are working to, to make, uh, to ever, to always expand democracy and to make it more truly um, democratic for all. And so that that's what I mean by democratic repair, right? The kind of struggles that people engage in that end up benefiting um, everyone, right? So I know, so if you think about something like, and this isn't, these aren't just around race, but thinking about 
the ways in which, you know, women's struggles for um, reproductive autonomy or, um, for example, have benefited other citizens in terms of, you know, your right to control medical decisions or your right to privacy or, um, or thinking about how claims that may be made on behalf of specific groups end up bringing, I think, benefits to all citizens. And so in some sense, that work of, of making democracy function for all is this work um, that I'm calling democratic repair that I think is predominantly how democratic theorists tend to understand the struggles of um, oppressed groups to, um, to gain greater measures of freedom and justice. Right. So if I, if I understand your argument correctly, then democratic sacrifice I, and the kind of what you're calling the romantic narrative, democratic sacrifice is how we get to democratic repair. So, you know, the, I would say the cliched understanding of MLK is that it's like the nonviolent direct action where you put your body on the line and you suffer violence or intimidation. The police is somehow the best way to bring about democratic repair that brings about the Voting Rights Act, right? So, so your your article though kind of rejects that. So, why do you think democratic sacrifice isn't the best way for bringing about democratic repair? I have a couple of critiques of this this line of argument. And one of them has to do with the kind of underlying moral psychology that is um, is central to these claims. And, and, and the central claim there is often, right, um, and this is something that many civil rights activists made themselves, is this idea that when confronted with scenes of suffering, of unjust suffering, that people will, that fellow citizens will realize that um, that a, a wrong has been committed and will commit themselves to um, to redressing it, right? That they will experience a certain kind of shame and that this will lead to some kind of ethical transformation. And one of the things that I argue in the piece is that I think we tend to overstate the extent to which um, being confronted with 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 these um, images of, of of the pain of others actually induce moral transformation. That in fact the context of of of, of reception and of um, you know how we process these images of uh, um, is actually quite complicated, and that it's not a given that people are necessarily going to to see one thing. And, and have the same reaction. So for example, if you think about the kind of viral videos of police violence that have been very central to the mobilization of the movement for Black Lives in the US, it's true that a lot of people have seen those videos and, and, and said, oh my God, the police are, are really out of control or this is, this is wrong, how can they do that? But other people have looked at them and said, you know, why didn't the victim do X? Why did the victim do Y? Um, the, you know, they have they have interpreted the same um, the same images and the same situation in very different ways. So part of what I'm suggesting is that I think um, we can't assume 
that the that being confronted with the fact of injustice will necessarily lead people to then um, reject uh, those um, uh, reject those positions. And then the other argument that I make is is also um, that I think what it ends up doing is it ends up requiring the same people over and over to keep on making the same sacrifices, right? So, um, so it's not, let's say that African-Americans in the 1960s, right? That, that those sacrifices were enough. We're in 2021 and the same people keep having to make the same, you know, uh, her, to take the same heroic actions to try to make US democracy live up to its ideals. And so at some point, I think um, part of what I'm suggesting is that we end up simply asking certain people to do that kind of work of, of democracy and not others. So to bring up to the contemporary moment, we I think we see, well, your, your, argue, your article argues that we see this come out in the criticisms of Black Lives Matter movement, right? So we, we see like a lot of common criticisms that the, the movement gets criticized for not following the strategic nonviolence model of the civil rights movement, for not engaging in respectability politics. And then also some stuff that's perhaps a slightly different angle, but concern about a lack of, of clear leaders or hierarchical leadership or the lack of clear policy goals. So why do you think these criticisms of the movement are unfair? Well, I think what they miss is that many of those are intentional choices that are in fact being made by these young activists in response to what they see as the failures of earlier uh, moments of black political mobilization, right? So if we think about the civil rights movement and you think about a figure like Bayard Rustin, right? Who was the organizer of the March on Washington, was um, a very important um, ally of, of Dr. King and civil rights leader, and yet was sidelined in all these important ways because he was a gay man. And so there, and if you you think about the figures that we remember, and it's people like MLK, but of course there are all these other women um, who were, you know, other people who were centrally involved, particularly women who we don't remember. So I think part of what we're seeing in the movement for Black Lives is that they're drawing on. Um, Black feminism in particular, and the critiques of the civil rights movement and the way in which we remember that movement that overshadowed the contributions of people um, like Black women, um, the ways in which um, the hierarchies of gender and sexuality were reproduced in the movement. So some of these things that people are pointing to are actually um, considered strategies to try not to fall into the same what they see as the same problems of these previous moments of, of black political mobilization um, and, and, and actually um, implementing um, Diva Woodley has um, um, a wonderful new book that's coming out on, on the movement for black lives, where she says that they're really implementing this black feminist conception of care, um, care for each other, care for the world, um, care for black communities. And that, um, and the, and that leads to a certain set of practices. And I think part of what, you know, where the criticism is coming from is because 
we're not used to seeing movements that look like that, right? We're used to seeing movements where there's the charismatic leader, um, often male, um, and and there's a, a clear structure. And so I think this is um, this is one of the things that that are that is being missed in that critique, and that comes precisely from this way in which this problematic romantic um, way in which we misremember the civil rights movement, which wasn't one movement or one organization or one set of tactics. I just want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier. So you mentioned that a lot of these criticisms rest on a, a misunderstanding of of moral psychology, right? So, and you said you were skeptical about the, the, the possibility for change in this way. So if people can't really be shamed into changing, I think this, this actually posed a pretty dark problem for, for democratic theory, right? Because these groups are marginalized partly just numerically because they're in the minority and in democracy, the majority always wins. So if, if moral psychology and shame doesn't work, then what are the alternatives for for minority groups or oppressed marginalized groups to get the, the dominant groups to, to change their, their views. What I'm trying to, to suggest is that we need to think in a more complex way about the, 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 the work that we think um, images and, and representations of, 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 of pain and suffering and subordination do, right? So we assume that they will induce shame, but what about if what they induce is pleasure or they reinforce a sense of dominance, Mm -hmm. right? So, um, you know, I'm thinking right now, um, you know, they're plastered all over the the media in in the United States or the images of the the border patrol agents on on horses, you know, um, using what have been described as whips to try to prevent Haitian immigrants from entering the country. Um, and, and, and one has to wonder, I think a lot, a lot of people have been horrified by those images, but if, but I think it's also plausible that people who are um, xenophobic and anti-immigrant might find in those, uh, uh, you know, a certain reassurance of, of that their sense that the country is under siege is is um, it, that their their interests are being protected. So part of what I'm saying is I think we need to be um, we need to be more realistic about how it is that political transformation happens, and not assume simply that these these kind of images of, of pain and suffering are going to do a certain kind of work. Um, and so I guess part of what I would say is that I think the way in which, um, you know, um, political transformation will happen is by people creating coalitions and and finding ways um, essentially to, um, as you said, finding ways to to create solidarities between different groups and, and creating coalitions that are, that are, enough to overcome these um, these people who have doubled down on the, you know, on dominance and this kind of politics of domination. 
Yeah. So, so just the like follow up. It's it's the focus on shame may not work because some groups may get, as you said, get pleasure off it. So instead, it's the kind of a kind of cross cross cultural or cross cross group solidarity is yes. the path, right? Yeah. Okay. So. I think so. I mean, part of this is this is kind of the way I kind of found your article was was through my work on riots, right? And so for me, one of the more provocative claims in your article is that riots are a mode of democratic repair, and that that you know, because I, I, I obviously taken a you know a, a view that riots might be legitimate, but this was even I think a more well at least provocative claim. Um, so do you mind explaining what you mean by that? And then how do you think, you know, moments like Minneapolis and Ferguson and Baltimore, uh, kind of bring about the kind of democratic repair that you're, you're talking about in your article? So one of the things that I argue in, in the piece is that historically, right. One of the, the emotions that, um, subordinated groups and, and black people in particular in the United States have not been able to express is anger, right. Even though of course, anger at injustice is justified. And so they, um, this is something that we see in the way in which the civil rights movement is remembered, right. So that even righteous anger becomes very troubling or, or, or very frightening for dominant groups. And so part of what I think is happening in these attempts to domesticate, to, to discipline um, these forms of, of, um, of, black, of protest is this fear of, 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 exp- you know, of anger, of black anger in particular. And so in that context, I think um, we can think about riots, you know, one of the, as allowing for the expression of anger and pain that otherwise has no kind of other, you know, outlet, no kind of civic outlet. Um, And that is one of the ways in which I, I say that, you know, rioting may not in and of itself transform the conditions that people are rioting against, but that rioting can be an assertion of people's humanity. I was just listening um, to this podcast on the Stonewall riots, right, which are iconic in um, the uh, gay liberation movement. And one of the things that the they interviewed participants talking about their participation, and that's where we now get, right, the pride parades that are a global phenomenon. They came out of Stonewall. But one of the things that they talk about is how up until that point, it was, um, you couldn't openly be a gay person. You faced tons of, of, of discrimination in the street and in, in the workplace that was in the family, you know, that, and, and it was accepted. And that this responds to um, a crackdown by the police, right? Being, um, not allowing themselves to be silenced or to be, pushed aside had this liberating effect that then galvanized um, gay rights activism subsequently. So this is the sense in which I think rioting, which we tend to think about as, as counterproductive, not you, but other people tend to think about as counterproductive and as, you know, as detracting from, um, from people's political goals might actually be doing certain kinds of work um, that is important. I think 
and I think that it that instead of simply labeling it sort of right um, chaotic um, or you know um, anarchic political activity, that it's worth thinking about what's happening in those moments and 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 what kind of work are those moments doing. I mean, what do I, what do I say that part of what your argument is? Maybe just tell me if you think I'm wrong here. But it's it sounds like ultimately. If we're looking at this on an effective register, most of the kind of conventional democratic theory looks at at political action as kind of being as trying to leverage it to get other people to feel things or think in a certain way. And your points really, we need to to look at kind of the expressive dimension and not worry about whether or not it affects other people, right? So does that make sense? Or that absolutely makes sense. I mean, part of you're right. Part of my critique is is that. And this, I think, is true of the, the literature on civil disobedience as well, is that the emphasis is always on the communicative dimension of political action. Hmm. You know, how is it being received? What is it doing to other people? And never what it is it doing for the activists or the participants themselves. I think you, so this is a question that's come up just as I've been presenting research, especially over the summer. Um, and so one bit of pushback I get is... I shouldn't be using the term riot. I should be using this other label, uprisings. And actually, I interviewed Avia Pasternak for like an earlier episode. And she started off using rioting, but she's actually moved to kind of violent protests. Uh, and I, I did a conference this summer, a different scholar. He was like, well, war is morally neutral, but rioting is morally loaded and racially loaded. So you shouldn't use that. And I, I'm not... I, I'll just say I'm not sure what to make of that claim because on the one hand, yes, but I wonder if that's like a very specific moment, right? That basically from the 1960s to the present in the U.S. it gets interpreted that way. When I look back at, say, the history in Britain or England back in the 1500s, like rioting was just what the peasants did when they were unruly. And actually, if the lord of the manor had done a better job managing the peasants' concerns, there wouldn't be a riot. So there's actually a weird way the moral blame fell on the the elite, not on the, the lower order. Um, so I'm wondering, what, what do you think? Because you kind of discussed this briefly in the article, but what do you think about this term? And do you keep using the term riot or would you kind of think we should shift to a different term? So I think this is a really interesting uh, question. And, I, and, I, and, I, and one of the things that I appreciate about your work is precisely that it gives this longer historical um, perspective where we can see that rioting was not always, did not always have this negative moral connotation, right? Um, I think that when we look at the ways in which Black protesters have characterized their um, their activities, I think a lot of folks have used the term uprising, right? So they, instead of, of talking about riots, they talk about uprisings, but other people use, use riots. And I think I had, um, you know, I, at some point, do use the term uprising, but I also think there's a sense in which we might want to reclaim rioting. Mm. We might re reclaim the term rather than cede it, right? So so part of, of one of the reasons why, why I say is because I knew saying that riots were a form of democratic repair will strike people as being very provocative rather than saying uprising, which would have probably not raised as many eyebrows as precisely to say no. What if we actually confront what we think of as politics as it's most at, at its most messy and think about what's 
politically and civically productive about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what what do you think happens then? So I guess maybe this is like a not meant to be a gotcha. The earliest I've been able to trace the uprisings, not riots, is to 1992 and Maxine Waters. Maybe maybe you found earlier stuff and but she and she basically came out and was like, "LA is not a riot; it's an uprising, right?" And it was very much an attempt to push back against an obvious narrative at that point in time that that this was just people going out of control and to, to draw attention to the underlying issues of police violence in LA that had, had triggered that, that riot or that event for whatever term you want. So, and I can, I can understand why she'd do that, but I'm also like, I, I think I'm kind of with you that there's something to be said about if we understand the riot as um, anger, <laughs> then the question, be, then the question becomes, why are people angry and is it legitimate anger or not? Right. So, so what, what's your view on that? So I, um, I absolutely think that that's the case that there, that part of the, the discomfort, you know, part of the discomfort with the term rioting is precisely because of these connotations that have to do with certain, um, unruly affects like anger, but also this, this, I, you know, this idea that rioting is um, is undirected political action. It's just random and chaotic. Whereas an uprising gives us this this impression, right? That there's a plan. There's a there's a you know there's a political um, uh, program that's being followed. And I think that um, that thinking about that. As, as theorists, we have to think about why we're more comfortable with, with, with one than the other. But I think looking at, at how people understand their own actions, the reality is that often on the ground, I would venture to say it's closer to, to how we think about riots than how we think about uprisings, right? So, so if that's the case, um, then, then maybe we need to, to think about um, whether we're sort of privileging this account of political change that um, that overemphasizes a kind of intentionality and a kind of um, that is not how it act, political transformation actually happens. The other thing I will say is I totally I I understand why um, why Waters wants to make the distinction and, and and of course she's doing it in in a context in which right. Um, rioting had become by that point, right, the antithesis of the civil disobedience of the civil rights movement, right? This is what the the sort of um, the the folks who didn't have, a, um, you know, a, a clear political um, agenda, the kinds of, 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 of senseless violence that they engaged in. And so she's trying to disrupt, I think, that contrast by turning to uprising. But if you look even at people whom we think of as sort of classic um, defenders of civil disobedience, um, like MLK, you know, he he has a critique of rioting, but he also has, um, he's also has a I don't know if the if the right word be to say he has a defense of it, but he certainly is understanding of why riots occur and uh, and and does the same move that you're pointing to, which is to say, okay, 
don't condemn the rioting. Think about why people are moved to it, right? Um, and and see it not as something that's emerging sui generis, but that is actually a response to white backlash, um, is what he says. So I think that that tracing some of those um, the the various ways in which people have tried to come to terms or, or tried to think about um, the term might be helpful in, in in making some of these decisions about what makes sense to describe the the kinds of political activity that you're you're grappling with. But I I guess my sense is that there's something that's lost if we simply abandon seed riding as it were hmm. in favor of uprising yeah i think that's that's a good place to end so so thank you very much for joining joining us today and uh i'll put a link in the show notes to your article as well as as the other pieces you've written on this topic but thank, thank you very much for the conversation today thank you um it's always great to talk riots <laughs> <laughs> The Just Riot Theory podcast is part of my British Academy Mid-Career Fellowship project called Just and Unjust Riots, a normative assessment of militant protest. It is produced by Thea Hartman at the Public Engagement with Research Unit at the University of Southampton. Funding for the podcast series was provided by the British Academy.